1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: I'm Caleb Zacharin, assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in History. Today I'm speaking with Zachary M. Schrag about his new book, The Princeton Guide to Historical Research. This book is the most recent winner of the AHA's James Harvey Robinson Prize in the Teaching and Learning of History. The Princeton Guide to Historical Research is truly a masterclass in writing. Zach does such a wonderful job of putting different works of history in conversation, Across all sorts of specialties and topics. Any historian or lover of history books will find unique insights in this book. Zach, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. I think the AHA was was, was definitely right to uh, award you uh, this prize. It, it was really fascinating. And, and I think also, especially as me as someone who's not a historian, uh, it's very interesting to learn about uh, a little bit more about this sort of the state of the field uh, and different books because. You really just do such a great job of covering it, especially books in American history, just covering different topics. So before jumping into the book, I was just wondering if you could tell me about yourself and your background.
1: So um, I'm a professor of history at George Mason University in Virginia. I'm coming up on 20 years. I started there in the fall of 2004. And uh, before that, I got my doctorate at Columbia University. And there are mentions in the book of some of the wonderful professors I was able to work with there. Um, and taught there, taught at Baruch College, also New York, uh, for one-year stints before coming to Mason, as I said, in 2004.
0: And I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about why you chose to
1: write this book. So the book has two different origin stories. Um, One began when I was a graduate student as a teaching assistant at Columbia and Barnard, and I found that sometimes I was giving the same advice to multiple students. So rather than just Print out the same advice all the time. There was this new technology available called the World Wide Web, and at that point, I was writing pages by hand, right, uh, tag by tag. And I thought, okay, I'll I'll take some of this standard advice and put it on a website. This was a, a new thing um, in 1997 or so. And I kept doing that every semester. I'd say, okay, what advice did I give to multiple students? I will post that on the web. And eventually, I spun it off into its own website, historyprofessor.org. And if you do that uh, for a decade and a half, you end up with around 20,000 words, which is a head start on a book. And it was at this point, after I'd been doing this for a long time, that I was approached by Peter Dougherty at Princeton University Press, who had an idea for a book, A Guide to Research, and was looking for an author. And we got together and uh, had a meeting of minds, and it turned out that... Yes, I had only written a portion of this, but I kind of knew the rhythm of what it meant to provide the kind of advice that I like to provide, and more importantly, how to find the kind of examples I like to give. Because if you look into the book, it's not just me spouting out ideas about how people should write history. It's an empirical investigation of how some of the best historians do their work and frame their projects. And so I I strongly believe that this book represents not my own personal tastes, but rather is designed to reflect the values of my profession.
0: I, you know, I I was actually wondering how you managed to get historyprofessor.org and that makes sense if you made the website 20 years ago uh because it felt like a you know that would be a a, a URL that would have been taken long long ago. Um and it, I think you're totally right. You, you you discussed so many books. Um I was co- constantly found myself underlining books that I had not heard of because they were on topics that I hadn't thought to investigate but you made them sound, you know very interesting. Uh, and you know th- this book is more or less about how to write a history book. So I'm wondering, what is it like writing about how to write?
1: so I, I would have a hard time imagining doing this had I not had the classroom experience because, as I said, I began the project not knowing I was writing a book, rather writing advice for students. And I've had the opportunity over the decades, to teach everyone from first-year undergraduates who are in the 100-level course and not really sure why they are there, to doctoral students working on dissertations, um, of course, you know, editing, peer-reviewing, other kinds of works where I'm even helping established scholars do their work, and everything in between. I've had the chance to teach the methods classes uh, to the undergraduate history majors, to our master's students, And so in that sense, I had my imagined reader right in front of me. And I could think, what would a student need to know about outlining? What would a student need to know about character development? What would a student need to know for their first step into the archives? Because I've met those students, I know them well.
0: As you discuss in the book, there obviously is not one clear-cut definition of history. But if you could offer to our listeners... Uh, How would you define history?
1: Yeah, so a lot of the book, I'm again trying to reflect what historians agree about, uh, about, but uh, there are a few cases where I let myself put my own stamp on it. And the definition of history is one of them where my preferred definition is that history is the study of people and the choices they made. So that differentiates it from other investigations of the past, uh, archeology, span for example, where you're looking at objects and maybe talking a bit about why people decided to make or preserve or trade those objects. But the fundamentals, as I understand it, of archaeology are to document the objects. It's different from, say, paleontology, where you might be talking about extinct animals. Um, It's different uh, potentially from literature and art history, where you may be looking at the works of art as their own um, creations, though I know from sharing a department with art historians that some of their work is very much uh, like the work of historians without the adjective. Um, And uh, again, this puts me at odds with some historians of technology, some environmental historians who say, people aren't the only stories we can tell, but when you actually look at their books, on most pages, there are people. So I feel reasonably confident about this. Um, And then in terms of emphasizing choices, I think that this helps students especially to think about what they're doing, not just here's what people did, but here are the moments where they could have done something else. And that could be a different action. Uh, They could have voted differently, or they could have taken a different job or purchased different items, or it could be a thought. They may have understood the world in a way differently from two generations back at contest of meanings. Um, And so I, I think this helps, again, students, readers of history, writers of history, Think about history as not just a series of events, but a series of choices made by people. And you need to know who those people are if you are going to do historical research
0: or understand historical research. You discuss in the book and in the second chapter about the ethics that historians might need to consider when they go about their work. And you discuss part of the difficulty of history is, you know, that it kind of seems to more or less fall in between science, uh, science and an art. It's 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 a, it's a, a tweener uh, in, a, in a way. Uh, and I was wondering if you could just talk about you know the role that that truth plays in writing history. Is history about truth? Is it something else? Uh, what 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 is the uh, you know the kind of the ethics about the leaps that we can that historians can take in their interpretive work?
1: Yeah. So the ethics chapter. Um spun out of the definitions chapter, but I I feel that um, it was the right choice to make to have a separate ethics chapter. It also comes out of my own long involvement in debates about institutional review boards and oral history, where I was able to work alongside the American Historical Association and other groups to reform those regulations. But when it comes to truthfulness or truth, That's part of debate that has been documented by scholars before me and and will be debated in the future about how much history can be scientific. And I I fear that the idea of a scientific history has been somewhat discredited in that it can be associated with predictions about the future. And I don't think that historians are necessarily very good at predicting the future. I don't believe in laws of history in the Christian or the Marxist sense or any of that. Um, I do believe in human choice. But I do think that historians over the last century and a half, perhaps two centuries now, have adopted some of the same methods of the sciences. Uh, We do peer review, for example, and we expect our results to be replicated in that people should find roughly the same thing that we find. And so I argue that history can be predictive of future findings. If one historian says, hey, if you look at this kind of literature, here's a pattern you will discover, the next historian ideally will find a similar pattern, if not the exact one, in similar sources. And I I do think that's very important uh, when we think, again, about what history isn't. One of the big things that we're struggling with in this country and in other countries is that lots of people want to make up falsehoods about the path. They they want to perpetuate myths. They want to create new myths. Um, We see this, for example, in uh, Putin's declarations about Ukraine and its lack of a national history. Um, He is making claims about history, about people and the choices they made. He's just not doing it with any kind of evidence. And so I think as scholars, we need to say, yes, we do have some methods and Part of that is documenting our sources. And when we speculate, we say that we are speculating. And sometimes you need to do that in order to fill in the gaps of the story. Again, I I think about paleontologists who rarely find a complete dinosaur skeleton. Usually they are uh, perhaps putting in some wire work just to space out the bones. In other cases, they are taking plaster casts of bones from other skeletons to fill things in. Ideally, the viewer has some idea of what is the actual fossil. And what is speculation on the exhibitors part? The The
0: next thing that you talk about is how to ask questions. And I, I thought that this was a really interesting, uh, interesting section, especially because, you know, my, my job as an interviewer is to ask questions. So it's always interesting to read about how to ask good questions. Um, and it definitely helps me, uh, you know, like, like you have the example of you know, why is it that we have salt? I don't know if this is your example or someone else's, but, you know, why is it on the American table, you know, food table? Why is it that we have salt and pepper? Why not cinnamon or cardamom or something else? And I was like, that's a great question. I don't know don't know the answer to that, but there's definitely a historical answer there. So, you know, how should historians ask good questions?
1: So um, I like the question, why? I think it's a, a fundamental question. You, If you spent time around a three-year-old, you're going to hear that question a lot. And it's wonderful. Uh, I love working with small children and hearing their why questions. And I I think probably around age nine or 10, uh, children, unfortunately, get a little bit embarrassed about not knowing things and are less likely to just point to something and say, hey, why is there salt and pepper on the table? And then uh, maybe when we get them into college, we can refresh some of that innate curiosity and ask those why questions. Obviously, there are other questions that historians work on. We ask who, we ask when, Uh, famously historians are interested in when, uh, we ask what, but a question, a, a paper or a project or any kind of research enterprise without a why question will not have the same kind of drive as one that has a why question. And my own work, a lot of it has been beginning to end, narrative history, where I'm trying to say, once upon a time, things were this way. And a few decades later, things were this other way. Why? And once you have that, you have the basic outline of a history project. You have your before, your during, and your after. And now you have a a three-word outline, and you just need
0: to fill in the holes. So, you know, when designing a research approach, let's say, you know, you you have your your question, your your outline, uh, you know, your topic. Uh, when, When designing the research approach, where should historians typically begin?
1: So I often encourage people to think about their main characters. Um, And again, this is borrowing perhaps a bit from fiction writing, where you'll read about novelists, uh, George Eliot or whatever, sitting down and imagining this character and then seeing where the character takes them. Historians need to make that same choice about which people they are most interested in. And uh, this is different from saying, oh, I'm going to write it about an event. You could say you're writing about election of 1912, where you could say that you're writing about the creation of the housewife image in the 1950s, but that's not getting you very far. What I would like to know as a teacher, as an editor, very quickly is who are your protagonists? Are you trying to understand the candidates in 1912? Are you trying to understand the voters? Are you trying to understand the journalists? Are you trying to understand uh, perhaps the workers or the farmers or some other interest group? Because then you can start asking a question about their behavior. Uh, Similarly for Housewives in the 1950s, are you asking about the women? Are you asking about the advertisers? Are you asking about the manufacturers? Are you asking about the novelists who wrote about these women? Um, Because in many cases, you can't write about them all. Even if you're doing a pretty thick book, you probably have some choices to make about who will be the protagonists and who will be the chorus or the background or the antagonist or some lesser role. And within a chapter, you might switch characters um, and have one chapter about one group and another chapter about another group. And this is a great way not only to focus a project, but also to begin identifying the sources you need, because the sources that you need for for one group are are quite different from the sources for another group. Um, And again, just to go back to my own graduate education, I remember being assigned Uh, both uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's Midwife's Tale and Alan Taylor's Liberty Men and the Great Proprietors, which are set in the same place and have some of the same people, um, but they are very different stories about Maine in the 1790s. And it's just fascinating to see how two of our very best historians could look at the same place at the same time and come out with different stories depending on the people they were most interested in.
0: I think, uh, you know, you, you get into a lot of how people can come to very different conclusions with with different sources and how there's, you know, you're, you're really the, so much of the meat of this book is looking at the different types of sources that are out there. Uh, so, you know, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how you think historians should think about different sources, if there are, you know, d- d- in order to write a good history, do you just need to rely only on primary sources? What is the value of secondary sources? Can you write a great history that you know, uh, uses primarily secondary sources as opposed to primary sources. Uh, you can take it take it in any direction that you'd like.
1: So um, obviously we have uh, lots of different kinds of great history and I don't want to draw too many boundaries. It is important for, again, people who are interested in the profession, whether they're students or not, to understand that there are those different genres. That, um, for example, someone who writes a great synthesis of a decade or a period in U.S. history Um, that might be an extremely valuable book, but it might make a terrible dissertation because generally we expect dissertations to be based on the primary sources. Uh, Same would go for an undergraduate or a graduate methods class where a student in one course might be asked to synthesize multiple books that they've read. And in the next class they take, they might be asked to take on something much smaller, but based on primary sources and use come up with some original finding. And so part of what I'm trying to do in this book is take these assumptions that senior historians probably know at some level, but make them more transparent. Um, especially again, for students, whether they're undergraduate, graduate, even high school, I I think can benefit from some explicit instruction on the different forms of history, the different purposes of it. So, um, Because this is a guide to historical research, I'm primarily looking to help people who are working with primary sources and figuring out in part how much you can rely on the secondary sources. And again, this is partly empirical. If you pick up any scholarly journal of history, what you're going to find usually is a pretty dense concentration of secondary sources in the first 20%, the introduction of the article where the scholar is setting the stage and saying, here are some debates that historians have been having. Here's some background you need to know. I'm not going to research this background anew. We'll just take it as a given. And then my story starts. And then suddenly the footnotes quickly shift to primarily, or in some cases, entirely primary sources. And it wouldn't be a bad exercise to just pick up a few journal articles and use one color for secondary sources and a different color for primary sources. And I think you will see that one source, one color gives way to the next one pretty quickly. The other point that I like to emphasize in that chapter is the idea of a set of sources or a source pool is a term that I've heard where very often a paper or a chapter or an article will rely on just one or two kinds of sources. It might be one archival collection, it might be a run of periodical literature, it might be congressional hearings, but the historian has chosen a route into the forest and they are going to stick to that route and a different historian would take a different route and come up with different things, but we do have finite lives. Uh, Historical research is pretty time uh, intensive, and so, to make that manageable, it's often best to say, "Yes, I'm going to read congressional hearings, and I will read newspaper reports, and that's what I can do in the time allotted to me." I'm not going to try to piece together diaries or um, individual letters that are scattered across the country. I'm not going to try to, um, you know, uh, look at deep photographic research, or or maybe that's what I will do. I will focus on. Street scenes taken by a certain number of photographers, and try to correlate that with some texts. But I can't find out everything about uh, New York City in the 1970s. I need to start somewhere.
0: Is there a particularly interesting or maybe innovative use of sources that uh, you found inspiring, Uh, or you know, if you could talk about even your own experience as a historian, uh, you know, working in archives, what that what that's been like piecing together different primary sources in order to craft history?
1: Yeah, so um, those are those are two different questions with two different answers, because on, on the inspiration part, um, I really like to pitch periodical literature, um, published literature, to my students as a good way into doing primary source research, but also having some predictability. So an article that I have taught many, many times is Arwen Mohan's uh, Laundryman Construct Their World that was published in Technology and Culture about 25 years ago. And she's looking at these trade journals that were published by and for owners and operators of commercial laundries and really thinking about them very carefully because they're this mix of um, advice columns and cartoons and advertisements. And you really get immersed into what it is like to run a commercial laundry Um, in the early 20th century, say. And she does a wonderful job extracting meaning. That particular article is largely about gender. Um, What does it mean to be a man in a business that is often associated with women's work? Um, But you can apply her basic approach to all kinds of different periodical literatures. And there are so many magazines out there, increasing numbers of them digitized, uh, some by the commercial firms, some by Google, some by Library of Congress, some by HathiTrust. And so it's really great to see that. Um, That said, if you pick up, again, most history journals, it's amazing how many of the articles in there Dip at least somewhat into archival manuscripts um, because that is the signature methodology of our profession. We do value that archival work. And, you know, there too, um, I love thinking of different archival collections as giving different perspectives. Sometimes it can be the perspective of the person who collected it. Um, If you are working, oh, with a congressman's papers, maybe you're writing about that congressman or maybe you're interested in the people who wrote to that congressman, the constituents, and that will give you a different story from the same archive. And so, um, you know, historians have done fantastic work uh, with all kinds of police records, uh, occasionally writing about police, but very often um, writing about people who were interacting with the police, often involuntarily, and um, pulling those stories out. Um, And so, uh, I do think it's important to understand that the creator of a text, whether it's a published or an archival source may or may not be the protagonist of the story
0: that you tell with that text. And do you want to maybe say something about the reason I asked the, the question that way of either someone else's example or of your own, because yeah. sometimes people don't like to talk about their own or sometimes people, if, an, if a good example springs to mind, but you know, um, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your own experience working in in an archive. I know it's a little far flung.
1: Yeah. So um, I'm actually, uh, you know, most of my work has been um, with archival sources. My most recent um, book other than the Princeton guide was the fires of Philadelphia, uh, which is about the riots in that city in 1844. And I was very fortunate that one of my main characters, General George Cudwallader was a great hoarder of papers. So I was able to, um, read his papers, or at least the ones that were legible um, in the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, and get some of the perspective that way. Um, one of his subordinate officers, Augustus Pleasanton, kept a diary that is just so catty. It is it is the most wonderful document, and he also had this beautiful handwriting. So um, he, he came out pretty well in the book. Um, it's hard not to be grateful to someone who keeps a, a detailed and uh, legible diary, um, even though uh, some of his actions were a bit questionable i think he, he had a bit of a taste for blood but um and and it is true it's it's just hard to have anything quite that exciting as holding an original document that was created by someone whose life fascinates you so um archival research is a joy um it's also very unpredictable um i've definitely had those cases where I'm expecting a document to be there and it's not there or I I feel like I've wasted a whole day and then the next box opens and wonderful things come out. Um, Usually you're supposed to be very quiet in an archive. The one noise you're allowed to make is when you find something really exciting and the archivist trots over and and I've had a couple of those moments with that last book. Um, One in the Library of Company of Philadelphia where there was a, a single issue of a newspaper published by a minor character in my story and uh, my librarian at Mason, George Oberly, found it for me. And he said, Hey, you should go to, next time you're in Philadelphia. And uh, so I went over there and, um, you know, get the standard archival folder. It looks boring and blank from the outside and you just open it up. And not only was the newspaper there, but on the front page of this newspaper was an engraving of an event that I had not seen illustrated anywhere else. And so it was just hugely exciting for me to see how people at the time understood what had happened in this particular brawl. Uh, There were depictions of these Irish-American workers with their shirt sleeves rolled up um, that I had, again, not seen anything like that. And so it's as a historian, it's hard to have anything approach quite that thrill. Um, The only thing that would really match it would be a good oral history interview where you um, have read about someone, you're interested, again, in the choices they made, you go out and meet them, and it turns out they're a great storyteller. And that's a wonderful thing, too, because you're not only using primary sources, you're creating them.
0: You, you compare history to a realist novel. Uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate on on this point, and also if there are any novels that inspire your work as a historian?
1: So uh, this reflects the influence of my colleague at Mason, Scott Berg, who teaches in the English department. He teaches nonfiction writing and has written some wonderful histories. Um, And another one is coming out on the Chicago Fire of 1871 and its aftermath. I've had the pleasure of reading that in manuscript. Um, But um, I, for many years, wanted to study under Scott Berg. I I said, I really like your work. When are you going to teach a class that I can take about how to write history? And he kind of put me off, put me off and finally said, fine, uh, we'll, we'll co-teach it. And he said, okay, we'll do that. So I got to co-teach a course with Scott. And um, he's trained as a journalist as well as an architect, fascinating guy. But he um, you know, put me onto some of the foundational texts of nonfiction writing, including the New Journalists of the 1960s and 1970s. And I think Tom Wolfe in particular um, has this essay about the techniques of the New Journalism the the nonfiction novel, I think might, that might be a Truman Capote term. But anyway, the idea is there are a few things that you really need to do to make history read like a novel. And uh, those include attention to setting. Those include dialogue. Uh, one of the less obvious ones I thought was status details, where you're introducing a character and you are describing what they're wearing or what kind of car they drive or what kind of car they want to drive. And that is going to clue your reader in to their wishes and desires and um and the kind of people who they are and and once you read that if you then go back to a, a master storyteller i'm thinking about you know, david hackett fisher and paul revere's ride that, you know lay people say oh I, I loved it it read like a novel um you begin to pull back the curtain and say oh i see what fisher is doing you know when he introduces paul revere i see what fisher is doing um, where he introduces captain parker and uh, so that can be really helpful. Um, I, I myself don't read very many novels. Um, you know, certainly uh, I, I like uh, some. I think the Vonnegut Slaughterhouse-Five is a great historian's novel because we are all unstuck in time and often not quite sure when we are. Um, Absalom Absalom is another great historian's novel where you've got these two people sitting in a room trying to figure out. What people did, what choices they made. Um, but in terms of my own non-historical reading, uh, I'll often prefer to read either investigative journalism or comic books.
0: Yeah, that I, I'm similar. Uh, I I'm addicted to reading history books. So, <laughs> so a, a well-written history book that reads like a novel is like the the dream. Um, you know, I I was also wondering. You know, you you talk about style, uh, and you know, obviously we discussed a little bit about that. You, you mentioned. You know, talking about status or or setting or dialogue, things along those lines. Uh, Are are there anything else that you haven't mentioned along those lines that you think are really effective? You know, of course, in addition to good storytelling, and good good questions.
1: So I I think a really big one that I've seen professional historians stumble on is character introductions. Um, I, I I know I've you know read books where I'm I'm seeing this name pop up over and over and I'm thinking am I supposed to know who this person is and I look in the index and I find the first mention of that person and it's in the middle of the paragraph and uh and you think oh that's why I missed it um, a good storyteller will introduce their characters with a bang and uh, just last night I saw the movie Devotion and let me tell you the the F4U Corsair has a great character introduction. That is the best character in the movie, um, and I won't spoil it, but when it comes on screen, you're like, oh, um, I, I am going to know this plane. And, um, again, comic books are great at this. Um, uh, if you've read Saga by Vaughn and Staples, you'll be turning a page, and then there will be a full panel of, you know, some new character. And you're like, Wow. Um, that's a really weird-looking, you know, creature because uh, Fiona Staple, magnificent artist, she'll she'll draw these animal-human hybrids. It's, it's very hard to explain unless you've seen it. But um, you know, again, they'll give a full-page uh, drawing to this character, and then suddenly you know who that is. And as I say, I think the the best uh, stylists um, in our profession. Um, often do this. Um, I'm thinking of Adam Hochschild's uh, Bear of the Chains, where he introduces the whole Sharp family coming down on a barge while playing music. I mean, you're not going to forget that. Um, it, it is a, a fantastic character introduction. And um, I've tried to do that in my own work. And I, I know I like reading um, works of history where you really um, know who the people are, and then you
0: get to see how they interact. This is maybe a more Mundane questions for the last couple, but you know, footnotes endnotes, notes in-text citations. Do you have a preference, and does it matter?
1: Uh, so obviously, in-text citations uh, are but you know, created for people who hate reading because you can't read anything with any enjoyment if you have uh, those parentheticals mocking up the texts. Um, endnotes and footnotes—they uh, actually both have their uses. Um, if you're trying to understand another scholar's source base, endnotes are great because you go straight to the endnotes and you see, oh, there are all these citations to this one source in a row. And that's much easier than trying to flip through lots of pages uh, of footnotes. Um, if you're interested in a particular fact, um, then footnotes are better. Um, in many cases, I hate to say that that neither one is particularly good if you've got paragraph end footnotes or endnotes. And so there's one fact and five or seven different sources uh, to that paragraph. And uh, this is something that the lawyers with their blue books do a little better is they will say this source corresponds um, to this claim. Um, So, you know, unfortunately, uh, while I think endnotes and footnotes are important, um, we are often left uh, taking things on faith And and there are definitely cases where I've seen claims that I would really love to run down. And um, unless a lot more things get digitized, um, that's not going to happen, um, because it's just too obscure to try to figure out what the historian thought was the basis for a particular claim.
0: Do you have any advice for historians or aspiring historians who are looking to write their first book?
1: Uh, I would say copy Um, that, you know, you don't want to copy anyone else's words or necessarily ideas, but you can absolutely copy their format. Uh, So my first book was a history of the Washington Metro. It's also a kind of biography of Washington, D.C. There are many, uh, many community studies out there and they have certain rules. And one of the rules you can find, again, is this before and after where um, it can be helpful to, before you start changing your city, to try to find a kind of fixed point with which to begin. Uh, I think you can trace this back to Gibbon, uh, at the very least. Um, if you're going to have Rome decline and fall, it's nice to have a starting point, and he has Rome in the Age of the Antonines or something as his whole first section. Uh, You'll find it in Handlin's Boston's Immigrants. You know, what was Boston like before the Irish came? Uh, I particularly was looking at Sigru, Origin of the Urban Crisis, where the first chapter is Detroit in fairly good condition, and then it can all go downhill from there. Um, And so for my first chapter, I wanted nothing to happen. I wanted to give you a tour of Washington in 1955 that also tied into a kind of tour of transportation policy in 1955. So not at all original but you don't have to be original to be effective. In many cases, understanding the conventions is a good way to begin.
0: Let's say someone has written a book and they're looking to get it published, or maybe they've just recently got it published and they want to go out and share their work with other historians and compare notes. Uh, is there any advice that you would give to people just looking to you know, interact with other historians and get their ideas out there and improve their work for the next time around?
1: Yeah, well, this is a a moving target, of course. Um, We are in the midst of what may be the collapse of Twitter, which um, I have mixed feelings about. Uh, Certainly, Twitter was extremely helpful in writing the Princeton Guide. I was uh, quoting some tweets, but also in many cases seeing what books people recommended, uh, what books they loved, and saying, okay, I will go read that book and see if I love it as much. Um, So now we've got... um, people trying to rethink um, how this will work, whether it's on Mastodon or or some other platform. Um, Conferences, too, um, I think are in flux as a result of the pandemic. I'm looking forward to going to the American Historical Association Conference in Philadelphia, but we've also had experiments with online conferencing, and uh, I don't think anyone claims to know how that is going to look in the future um and you know the same thing goes with other forms of media um so you know unfortunately newspapers are reviewing many fewer books than they used to um and so we depend on people like you to pick up some of that slack And i'm very grateful for the work you've done um but it is a it is a moving target um and as with creating a book i I think often the question is how can i copy what i like so you know when i uh See projects that are like mine. I'll read those acknowledgments. I'll say, "Here's where someone presented their work. Here's the grants that they applied for and won." And in many cases, um, I think historians are pretty generous with their time, especially if you begin your conversation or email with the words, "I loved your book." Um, It's remarkable how powerful those words are.
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely true. I mean, even you know, I'm not a historian. I'm not in the academy, and I found uh, that. You know, if you, if you read someone's book, people are unbelievably open to having an interesting conversation about them. And uh, you know, you, you also talk a little bit about this sort of importance of, of public history um, and this idea of historians going out there and sharing their work. and And I think, I suppose, you know, my my last question uh, is if there's any th- any thoughts that you have about you know just keeping the tradition of of history alive uh, and. You know, sharing the work out there to, you know, combat the the increasing, you know, seemingly increasing ignorance of of the past that people seem to have today.
1: Well, as your listeners may have gathered, um, I am much more of a lumper than a splitter. I, I do see continuities between the works of the, you know, old white men like Gibbon and some of the very most experimental work going on right now, in that people are looking for a through line. I see continuities between the works of more narrative popular writers like Adam Hochschild to, again, uh, scholars writing their dissertations. And I see continuities between written works and other kinds of media, uh, whether it's graphic histories or museum exhibits or documentaries or historical sites. Um, I once was consulted on an exhibit. It it didn't actually end up happening, but um, I was walked through an exhibit space and was told, okay, here are the rooms we have and we're going to have to tell a story in each one. And I thought, oh, that's just like chapters in a book. Um, And now that I when I go to museum exhibits, I say, oh, I understand what's going on. This room has a thesis statement, and then the artifacts are going to make up the evidence for that. So, you know, I do hope that we can appreciate those continuities and not do too much policing of boundaries, because um, as uh, the profession faces tremendous challenges in terms of student enrollments and employment and all the rest, we're going to need to work together rather than trying to uh, work against each other.
0: Yeah, I think that's a that's a great message, uh, and I'm sure you know one that that almost every single listener, maybe except for except for the haters, uh, will will agree with. Uh, well, Zach, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. Um, the The book is the Princeton Guide to Historical Research, and uh, I mentioned at the beginning, uh, but this is we're, we're doing a a series of some of the winners of the AHA Book Prizes, and uh, Zach was was the winner of the James Harvey Robinson Prize in the Teaching and Learning of History. Uh, and definitely well-deserved.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a delight.